Uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, and so based on last week, Nehemiah chapter 8, just in case you missed that, uh, God's people stood outside all day long and listened to Nehemiah, uh, well not Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest, stood up on a platform and he read from the law of the Lord, and they stood up, and today we're going to make our way through Nehemiah 9, so um, yeah, it's a long chapter, but uh, as we looked at last week, that God's word is alive and it's living and it's really good to be read in large chunks. So I'm not going to make you stand this week, but I am going to read the whole chapter and then uh, I'll pray for us. And I want you to look out for two things. Look out for the faithfulness of God and look out for how often God's people just fail and mess it up over and over and over again. And look at what these people are confessing. They're owning up to not just their own sins, but their grandmother's sins and their great-grandmother's sins and their great-great-grandparents' sins. They're going back generationally and looking at themselves as the covenant community. And they're confessing, we have been sinful beyond measure in the sight of a sinless, perfect God. And you would think that God would get tired of them and throw them away, and he doesn't. This is the word of the Lord. Now on the 24th day of that month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of a day, and for another quarter of the day, they made confession of sin, and they worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kitmael, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chaniah, or Chananiah, or Chananiah, let me say that. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, and Kadmiel, and Bani, and Hashbaniah, and Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and all praise. You are the Lord, and you alone, and you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you and you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and you made a covenant with him to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they ex acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast the pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. 
And you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commanded commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. And they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are merciful. You are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. And you gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and to possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of the houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance so that they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed these great blasphemies. And therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of suffering, they cried out to you when you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. And for many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. And therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are gracious and a merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, mighty, and the awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this very day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have act, acted wickedly. Our kings, our priests, our princes, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this very day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is true and righteous. It is good for our souls. Thank you for the reading of it. And what your spirit promises when your word is read, that he will move and he will have bring conviction. He will train in righteousness. He will open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. And thank you for your spirit, which works through frail men such as myself to unpack what we've read. As we saw last week, may you add a double blessing to our reading and now hearing of the word that we would be changed by it. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so that was about eight minutes. I was trying to, I, almost there, all right? So John Stott has this little book, and it's out of print right now, but I think it's about to be reprinted again, and it's called Confess Your Sins, The Path Towards Reconciliation. And in that book, he opens with this scene, which I'm sure many of you can uh, relate to, but he opens up a scene that he recalls from his childhood when some kid does something in some school, I'm guessing he pulls a fire alarm or he writes graffiti on the wall. I can't, you can't, he doesn't unpack all of it, but this kid does something that is bad and the principal finds out. And so the principal calls an assembly, calls everyone into the assembly and insists on finding out who did that thing. And Stott starts to move into this area of examining the heart of the person who did it. He says, someone in this room committed this crime, and right now that person has a decision to make. Will I cover my iniquity or will I confess it? Right now, the palms of that person, is probably, they're probably sweating. Their, 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 their heartbeat is probably raised, and there is fear. They are torn in that moment of confessing or covering what they did. And then in one sentence, he says, if we're all honest, we are all like that before our God. In the way that a child who has committed a crime or an offense is hesitant to own up to the offense, in the same way, if we're honest, we adults are like that before our Father in heaven. And we cover. 
and we rationalize and we wonder, is it safe to confess this thing to our God? What will he think of me? Will his love still be there? Am I secure? You know, this passage, in my opinion, Israel has decided to not cover their iniquity. They've decided to confess it openly. You see, they're going to be God's people living in God's city. And he wants the real them. He does not want them to pretend or to put a mask on or to act like they're not. He wants them to come back to him as they really are, that he might heal and forgive. And that's what you see in this passage that I think is beautiful. It's sobering, transparent ownership. It's confession of sin that I think is unparalleled in several other places in scripture. And you see it in verse two. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. Look at verse three. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession. Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Look at verse 17. They refused to obey. Look at verse 18. They made for themselves a golden calf and they committed great blasphemies. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets. Look at verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. Look at verse 30. They would not give ear to your law. And finally, in 36 and 37, they stopped looking back to their ancestors about what their ancestors did that was sinful. They actually took ownership for their own sin. Behold, we are slaves this day and the rich yield of our land goes to the kings whom you set over us. Why? Because of our sins. Do you see what's happening? This whole passage is about confession. God's people are coming out of hiding and they are confessing the way that they have transgressed and trampled upon the glory and dignity and provision and mercy of God. And so the question that I want to put before us is, are we a confessional community? Are we regularly confessing our sins to God or are we like children and God sees all things? Are we trying to perpetually hide those parts of our lives from him as if he can't see it already? I think God makes some beautiful promises in this text, but the promises come to those who stop covering up and start owning up to what's going on in our hearts. And so what I wanna do is sort of look at this passage under four headings. I wanna look at the privilege of confession because I think it is a beautiful privilege. I wanna look at what prompts confession. In other words, if it's a privilege, what, what will move us in that direction where we start living uh, open lives before our God? I want to look at what's a, a healthy practice of biblical confession. And I want to look at the promise that God makes to those who confess. Let me grab my glasses real quick. I'm, I'm struggling up here right now. I'm trying to do it without them, but I had them on. 
And once you have them on and take them off, it's, 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 it's lost, all right? So the first thing, the privilege of confession. Now, we don't know what happens in this text, but I mean, it's like the, the water faucet just is turned on when you read chapter nine. I mean, they're confessing. I mean, a matter of fact, it's at least 10 or 11 times in this one chapter that they're owning up to sin. Now, we don't know what prompts it, right? It could be that they came across Psalm 32, which was our call to worship. And so if you want to open that up real quick, there's a reason why we confess sins at the beginning of our worship service, right? But look at what, look at what David writes in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Look at what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When he kept silent about his sins, his bone wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And so what you see, even in Psalm 32, is this open handedness that David has with the Lord. I will not I will not hide. I will not cover up. That, that this keeping this stuff in, it is tormenting my soul. Your hand is heavy. Your spirit is upon me and there is no joy. And so David says, I know what I'll do. I've tried covering up. It's time to confess. And so this means that confession of sin is a privilege. It is a privilege that God commands that we partake of. Could it be that they read Psalm, Proverbs 28? 13, which says, he that covers his sin shall not prosper. I mean, think about that. Think about what God is saying. Do not cover it up. Don't act like it's not in your life. You are not yet redeemed. I am not yet fully what I will be in Christ on glory. As long as I walk on this earth, the old man and the old woman, it's still alive in us. And so even though we hear Psalm 32, even though we hear Psalm 51, even though we know Psalm 19, even though we know 1 John, and 1 John says, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? But if we confess our sins, so all of scripture is moving in this direction, Christians don't cover you don't have to cover. The gospel is strong enough to handle your fallenness, your brokenness. You can stop pretending. We can come out of hiding because our God wants to reel us. Even though we hear all of that, we hide. Some of that is because of the world. That out in the world, you don't show weakness. Out in the world, you, you lose credibility if you show vulnerability. Out in the world, you can't show your real self what you really struggle with, what you really wrestle with. You can't show it. And so we put on and that's out there. I think that's part of it because that's the world we live in. But it's also not just in the world. It's also in us that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, do you know how they responded to God? Did they come up to him and says, Lord, we did this? No. It says that they ran from him. They hid from him. They covered themselves up and God had to seek them out. In other words, our fallenness makes us 
prone to cover, just like a kid. It's what happened with Achan when he stole some gold and silver that should have been devoted to destruction. It says, I saw it, I coveted it, I took it, and then you know what he did? He dug a hole in his tent and hid it under there. And we might not be stealing silver and gold and hiding it, but we do other things. We covet and take and curse and get angry and lust and worship money and care more about our image and God's. And we cover it up. We don't want anyone to know, right? And Jesus says in Luke 12, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you whisper in private shall be proclaimed on housetops. Jesus is warning his disciples, do not be like the Pharisees. They are hypocrites. And that word hypocrite Several hundred years before Jesus showed up, you know what the word meant? It was an actor, an actor who got on a stage and put on a mask. And as soon as you got on stage with your mask, you acted into the part of the actor, right? And here's what Jesus is saying, mask off. Don't be like hypocrites who put the mask on and portray holiness and who portray that I have it all together. He says, I don't want the mask. I want the man behind the mask. And that's what he's saying to his disciples. You don't have to put a mask on with me. I want you, the real you. I think sometimes we do it just out of, man, just either ignorance or just not being taught there's, a, there's a, a story about Charles Spurgeon. There was a man who came up to Spurgeon who was uh, spreading this news that he was without sin. And he was speaking to the effect of having met Jesus, having been born again, and now he no longer struggled. And that was his reputation, right? And so here's what Spurgeon does. Spurgeon says, hey, I want you to come over for dinner. And so this guy comes into Charles Spurgeon's house and the guy's eating and this guy's steady talking about this doctrine about himself. And so finally, Charles Spurgeon is rumored to have taken a glass of water and just thrown it on the man, just right on him at his dinner table. And at that point, the man started to curse and got angry. And Spurgeon says, see, that old man was just asleep and all it took was a glass of water to wake him up, right? <laughs> This guy was just parading around the country that he was sinless. And Spurgeon says, all it takes is a cup of water. And that old man will come out. All it takes is somebody to get in front of you, right? All it takes is your kids to waste red Kool-Aid on your white rug, right? <laughs> all it takes is to lose money in the stock market, right? Like these small things, if you don't believe you're a sinner, Spurgeon is saying a glass of water to your face will show it. And what you see in this text, these people are confessing sin profusely. This passage is reminding us that confession of sin is a privilege. It's a privilege for God's people that your father can handle your darkest secrets. Your father can handle your deepest struggles. 
Your father can handle your deepest securities. Your father can handle your deepest fears. You don't have to act tough. He says, bring that to me. Now, here's a question. It, it, it's a privilege. Confession of sin is. Now, my question is, what prompts it? And, and I think you see it in verse three. Notice, I think this is absolutely beautiful, right? It's, look at verse three. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession. Now, in other words, stop right there. Like, what is driving confession? It's the word. It's as they are reading this right here, and only as they are reading this right here, are they becoming knowledgeable of the, the holiness of God, of the righteousness of God, of the beauty of God. And up against reading this, they're seeing a lot about themselves. And it, it is as they read the scriptures for a fourth of the day, they spend another fourth of the day confessing man. In other words, that what's going to prompt us to confess sins, which is a privilege and a blessing, it has to be the word of God. And here's what it means. It means that other people cannot be your ultimate authority. It means that you can't even be your ultimate authority. Now, what do I mean by other people? I'm not denying that you can live in community with other Christians who can confront your sin. That, that is important. But here's the thing. Other people aren't the final authority. And here's how I know this. I know this because when I became a believer, I had people in my life, in my life at that time who were well-intending Christians, and they were putting things on me now that I'm like, man, you were kind of off. That, that, that's not a sin. And so I'll give you a few examples. One example is, is my music, right? So I, I had like a CD booklet, right? Just CDs, a bunch of them, right? And I had the visors where you put the CDs on the visors when it was cool back in the day. Anybody had that? I did. All right. I know them. I see you, KC. But I actually had someone say, that, that's devil music. You got to get rid of that. And I'm like, what? And I, I remember where I was and I remember where, what I did. I threw away all of my non-Christian music, which was all of it. <laughs> And I put him in a garbage can and I left, right? When I got married, I, I pledged Kappa and Brian is Greek and some of you are. And it's customary to serenade our wives at our weddings. And the, the song is not necessarily a Christian song, but it is honoring that moment where you and your line brothers and your fraternity brothers get in a circle and you sing and you serenade her on a good day and I got somebody in my ear. You can't be bringing that stuff in here to a wedding. And so I did it. Like, I, I did not serenade my wife. I wanted to. Like, I really, really wanted to. But because I had people around me telling me, you can't do this because you're a Christian now, I didn't do it. When we moved to Jackson, and we're in seminary, and people found out my wife worked that there was a look of shame. Like, how dare she work outside the home? Right? Here's the thing. None of that is sinful. And rather than walk with me through Christian liberty and Christian license, it was easier to put law down. 
and it was easier to, to transport your culture upon me as if you have the market on holiness. And so what happened, it was easier. It was so easy to say, you can't listen to that music. It was so easy to say, you can't serenade her. It was so easy to say that she shouldn't work. And all what they should have done was disciple me. Sit down and teach me Christian liberty, the freedom I have in Christ, and sit down and teach me Christian license when I'm using my freedom to go to sin. It's harder to sit down and walk with somebody. It's easier to put your law and your custom, your culture over someone and treat it as an authority. And here's the thing. God says he's the Lord of culture. God is saying, I am the Lord of your conscience. God is saying, this right here, sola scriptura, this right here is the rule, the ultimate rule for faith and practice. And if you can't convince me right here, get out of here. Right? But it's easy, right? It's so easy to let other people be the authority. And so you and I end up confessing for stuff and con being convicted for stuff if this isn't even sin, you just hadn't read the rest of the Bible. But here's the thing. You might think that in saying that they can't be the authority, you might be thinking that I'm saying that you and I can be our own authority. And that's not true either. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, let me find it right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You see what Paul is saying? You can't do this. But in saying that you can't do it, I also can't do it. You hear what he's saying? I am not acquitted, even though I don't think I've done something wrong, right? He's, the idea is that, that one time, one day in the Lord, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose it. In other words, people aren't the authority. Yourself is not the authority. Well, what is the authority? The authority is the word. It's the word of God. And that's why many scholars say that there's a threefold use of the word of God. And I think it's really important to get this right. On the one hand, the word of God restrains evil in the world. If you thought about it, if you go back and read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, some of the law code that's there in terms of how God administered justice upon the person who, who premeditated murder or the person who accidentally murdered somebody, that, that in God's courtroom that there is equity and justice. And so when we have in our day and age different punishments for crime based on manslaughter, based on first-degree murder, based on capital murder, all of these things are flowing from the Bible. In other words, the Bible is there in a sense to restrain evil. So even a non-believer in the court of law will have an, a ministry of justice and it points to a greater judge. But another part, the, uh, the, another way the Bible works is that once a born-again believer who has had their sins paid for, who comes to know the Lord and is empowered by the Spirit, now when I read the Word, I can read the Word with a sincere desire to live a holy life. Lord, you tell me not to exasperate my children, right? 
So that means I don't need to be firm with them all the time. You tell me to care about the poor, so I need to make it a priority in my life, in my giving, in my serving, that I'm not just rubbing no shoulders with people who are in the same socioeconomic status that I, as I am. I need to have a bent towards mercy because you are a merciful God who's been merciful to me, right? In other words, we can care for the orphan and care for the widow and move in that direction because the word of God says it's important. And so we can approach the word as a believer. Lord, I want to honor you. Lord, I want to please you. And that is a good and right way to appropriate the word. But here's the thing. There's a third way. And the third thing the law, the, the law of God does is it shines light on our sin over and over again. That's what Paul says. If the law had not told me what coveting was, I would not have known it. Apart from the law, my sin lied dead. But when the law came, I realized that what, what a great coveter I was. You hear what Paul is saying? When I was not in this word, I had no idea what coveting was. And the moment I came and opened up and started reading Exodus chapter 20, and I realized that of all the Ten Commandments, coveting is not a primarily a behavioral issue. It's a desire issue. You shall not desire anything that is not yours. And Paul says, the moment I realized that the law of God goes deeper than behavior down to desire, it was then that I realized that, man, I'm in trouble. He was saying, Galatians, that the law of God is a schoolmaster who walks you to the school of the gospel. In other words, if you hire a babysitter that you put in charge of your children while you're gone, God puts the law in charge. But the law is walking him and walking them to their need for Jesus. And how do you know you need Jesus? When you come to realize that you're broken and you're sinful. And so it's, it's not a coincidence that they start confessing sin for a fourth of a day because they've read, a, read the word of God for a fourth of the day. Nehemiah is saying the reading of the word, this third way that we just talked about, it is what the Holy Spirit is using to convict them of sin. Now here's the thing, what happens if you don't read the word? You can't have biblical confession. It is the function of the word of God to show you your sin day in and day out. We talked about it the last week. If you read the Bible, and the only feeling you feel when you read the Bible is joy and prosperity, you're not reading the Bible right. The Bible's gonna cut you down. You're not gonna measure up, and it's gonna swipe the legs from under you every time you read it. That's why the word is important. Now, what, what does practicing biblical confession look like? I, I think a model is being laid out that I think should frame us. I'm assuming that you're a believer 
and that you believe that you were saved by confessing your sins and God reached down to, 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 to rescue you, I'm also assuming that you believe that God wants to reel you and not the mass. He wants to reel you. And I'm assuming that the word you will view the word of God as being truthful and it will be a tool that God will use to bring you back to your need of the gospel every day. Right. But I think there's a practice here. Assuming all of that, how then do we go about being transparent and open handed and those who confess our sinfulness to our God. What does that look like? I, I love this passage. Look at verse three. They read from the law for one fourth of a day and they confessed sin for one fourth of the day. And what else did they do? They worshiped the Lord. Look at verse four. The Levites cried out with a loud voice to the Lord of confession. But notice what else they did. They stood up and blessed the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your name. And I'm not going to get into all the, the sentences here, but I want you to see the big picture of Nehemiah 9. And here it is. It is the best summary of the Old Testament that I think we're going to find in the Old Testament. In other words, it's absolutely beautiful that, that look at it, that, that you're going to see two themes. And this first theme is God's utter faithfulness. So look at what it says. And verses nine through, I mean, verses six through 15, you get this whole idea that God, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth that in all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. In other words, that is all about Genesis chapters one and two. When God created the heavens and the earth, what they're doing right now is taking us all the way back that we are approaching that God, that God who created and sustained all things, who holds the world together by his powerful word. This is the God that we're talking to. Then you get the second block and you start to see God is not just creator. Look at verses seven and eight. Now he's the covenant initiator. It is he who found Abraham out. He was the one who went to Abraham, who was living in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And he says, follow me. And God made promises to him. I will make your name great. You will be the father of the nations. You will have offspring as numerous as the sun, I mean, as the stars. And I will give you land and I will be your God and you will be my people. God is saying that right there in, in Nehemiah 9. And then you see what? They went into Egypt. And notice what it talks about. God, look at verses 19, no, look at verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. That's ding, 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 ding. Now we're going from Abraham all the way over to who? Moses. And they're talking about God's covenant faithfulness to Moses and the people. God heard them when they cried out and he brought them out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and he provided for them in the wilderness. He gave them bread. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He gave them rocks. He gave them manna. None of their clothing wore out like it is recounting the faithfulness of God. And then when they got into trouble and got into the land, God sent them David that the cold word there is when they had rest. David was the king who brought Israel rest. And it's this idea that I got you out of Egypt and I got you into the land and I sent you saviors. I sent you prophets and I sent you judges and I sent you kings and you rested. Right. And then even though you spurned my law, you cried out to me and I, and I heard. And that's what you see over and over again is they are confessing the greatness of God and they are confessing 
the sinfulness of man. Now, where is the emphasis in this passage? Is the emphasis on the sinfulness of man? Or is the emphasis on the faithfulness of God? It's on the faithfulness of God. Ten verses, they're confessing sin. Twenty-eight verses, they're holding up. But you have been faithful. So if we're going to be those who own our sin and confess it, we do not confess it apart from seeing the character of God. And this is where I think we get into trouble, right? Because on the one hand, it might seem like God is saying, hey, just get in a circle and everybody uncover all of their dirt. That's what we're here to do is just to confess, 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 and keep looking at how bad we are. And what you see right here in this text is that is not complete. It's not complete confession, biblical confession, unless you end with how faithful and good and holy and just and righteous God is. If all we do is hover in our hearts and never make that jump from ourselves to him, it's not biblical confession. But in our circles, and typically in our circles, we don't want to own sin. All we want to do is talk about how great and how grand and how mighty and how good the gospel is. And what you see in this text is like, no, homeboy, God is good and you are not. You see the balance? That one group can get in huddle around confessing and we make our depravity the focus and God says, no, you've got to shine the light of the gospel on that. And the other group can get over here and talk, make God the focus, and we don't shine, let the darkness of who we are speak into it. And therefore, there is no biblical confession going on right there. Now, when I was in the seminary, one of my first classes, the professor passed around a list of names and it was like a bunch of these dudes, right? And I, I was so green, y'all. I didn't know. I, I mean, really, I was really green when I started seminary. And so he just passed out this list of names. He says, hey, all of you take a name, and I want you to do a 10-page paper. I want you to read a biography on a person. I want you to read some firsthand writings or sermons of that person. And so I saw a guy named Robert Murray McShane. And I'm thinking, okay, it's a black dude, right? Oh. Uh, <laughs> McGowan, McShane, I'm just like, okay. And he wasn't a black dude, right? By a long shot. But I mean, that, that's really, I'm like, okay, it's a black guy, right? And I realized, man, he was a pastor who died at the age of 29. He was a pastor in Scotland, and he was a student of Thomas Chalmers. And one day Chalmers was lecturing on holiness and confession of sin and its place in the Christian life. And Thomas Chalmers wrote this. He says, glimpses into your own heart alone is not good for your growth in grace. Open the shutters and let the sun in. So if you look well inwardly, make sure to look well outwardly. The true way to facilitate self-examination according to God's word is to look inward, but then to look believingly outward. And that lecture changed McShane's life. Because from that, several years later, when pastoring his people, he wrote this. He says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 
looks at Jesus. Think about that. For every time we want to condemn, for every time we want to confess, for every time we want to get in here and get this stuff out into the open, he says, do not make the mistake of going deeper in here. This will get you depressed and in trouble. You got to make the jump outward. I'm sinful, but you're sinless. I'm scared and I'm weak. But you're strong and mighty that I abuse grace, but you give grace. I want to stay in my sin and justify it, but you came to die for it. How can I? You see the way confession is supposed to work? It's supposed to come right in here and go right back to the cross. That there and there alone is the way that we live open handed and truthfully before God because the reality of God has to speak into the reality of ourselves. And so as you confess, Christian, don't just confess your sin. Confess the beauty of God. Confess this passage right here where you see him and you see them confessing shortcomings and sin over and over again. But God, but God was rich in mercy, but God delivers us, but God saved us, but God did not grow tired of us, right? Like you have to have both sounds in our hearts at the same time. If you don't, we will play with sin. And if you don't, we will be burdened by it rather than giving it to him. This is a model on how to do confession. Look in, but look out 10 times at the cross. 